Welcome to Holocene Nostalgia, episode... Episode four. (laughs) Episode four, yeah. Cool. So today we're talking about... What are we talking about? I feel like this is the first episode that we're both qualified to really talk about, um, which is like... Yeah. Environmentalism within academia, like university settings, or just like generally speaking what that looks like right now versus what environmentalism as like an activist for yeah so where do we where do we want to start with that like people have heard about my academic journey but they don't know as much about what you did so maybe that would be good okay so I went into university studying journalism and philosophy and then um, I had a really great mentor named Beth Haymaker Beth if you're listening I love you. Um, And Beth was like, why are you studying philosophy? I was like, I don't really know. So she said, you should take this um, major in politics, rights, and development. So I did that, and I kept reading philosophy and learning about political philosophy as well. And that eventually led me to space and place theory, which is like... Um, space and place theory is like what makes something a space and what makes something in the pl- a place. And around the same time as I started getting into space and place theory, I was um, shoot, I was active in the divestment movement and taking an environmental studies class. So I started to wonder about like what urban environments are, why we call why why we have to go to nature. That was sort of my question. Like why why are there parks? Why are there um, natural places that we have to go to like why aren't we in nature always why aren't our cities natural places um which eventually led me to write my thesis which had nothing to do with any of that but that's what sort of got me into theorizing about environment so my thesis was about um a lot of things and we could get more into them but I feel like I'm talking for a long time here no it's it's interesting I feel like that Um, probably from a different angle, but anthropology also kind of grapples with the construction of things and like, yeah, what, what, what's up with the public parks? Um, why is that the space that we go to? Um, and so, yeah, I have kind of similar interests in that way of, of like, not just, um, accepting what exists, but like questioning why that exists and how it comes to exist and the logics that we have today. Exactly. And the thing about it for me is, like, getting into sort of the philosophy of these things, the nitty-gritty, get out of here, Lewis. My dog is here. He's a cutie, but he's not a... Aww. doesn't know anything about academic environmentalism. We would get really good ratings if it was, like, 30 minutes of just barking. That would be amazing ratings. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, last episode, we cut out all the barking. Maybe I should have left it in. Maybe. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So there's a lot of thoughts you can have, which is there are a fun, lot of thoughts you can which have. Is what's fun about academia? Like once you start to think about these things, they become sort of these rabbit holes that you can go down, and like starting to unspool that gets really addicting in in its own way. If it's something that you're into, but it can feel really divorced from reality. Um, totally, that's a good way to put that. I've been trying to think about yeah that that exact thing so that's that's really helpful yeah yeah but like this thing about parks like I wrote this essay and it it just started it's that I, I remember the first essay 
I remember reading my first piece of space and place theory, like, really, really well, um, which is kind of like, I'd always thought, I didn't really believe in that, like, oh, this reading changed my life. But I, re- I was sitting on the north floor, fourth floor north of Bope's library, NYU, shout out. Sun was streaming in. And for my experiential learning class, or whatever it was called, I was assigned Yifu Tuan's Space and Place, the Perspective of Experience. And I was like, something that I wanted to put my hands on for so long, but didn't really understand was these theories of space and place. And like, we form, why do we form borders? Why do we form countries? Why do we form parks? Why are some things in and some things out? Like, if you start to look at them from this perspective of space and place, which is like human geography, a lot of things that seem disparate actually like coagulate in, in space, like in our lived space, not in like abstract three-dimensional space, but in like plazas. If you understand a plaza, you can understand a lot about the country that it's in, the economics of the people that are in it, the history of it. And that was like, whoa, how do I make this climate? Like, what, how do I take this and make it climate? And that was very That's exciting. amazing. I feel like my academic journey just taught me to not feel awkward at a party. So <laughs> yours is so much better. <laughs> I've seen you at a party, Michelle. You're still awkward. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I just, I'm like, if I, if I feel like I'm not fitting in, then I just, like, think about all the ways that those people are just incultured and um, linguistically repairing with each other. And I'm like, it's fine that I don't fit in. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just going to think my way exactly. out of social anxiety. Exactly. <laughs> So thank you for those eloquent thoughts, Ish, and I just ruined it. <laughs> um, no, it's perfectly all right. I start to talk about my thesis, um, and people just, like, their eyes glaze. Oh, over. yeah. Yeah, I feel that way with mine as well, because they're like, yeah, why would tourism matter? And I'm like, good point. <laughs> uh, well, but, yeah, I think um, yeah. I recently went to a conference, like an academic conference, and it was... I kept having like these conflicting thoughts where I was like, whoa, this is so cool. This is really interesting. And then also like, what does this do in the world? Um, but, right. but I think that what I, I'm trying to come to, I don't know. I mean, you know, you can have those questions endlessly is like, it's part of the process of being human is the academic component. You know, like people have to have the theories or have the ideas or think critically in order for other people to then enact those things. Like we're part of a collective. Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah. But it still feels so like if you talk about like the body politic, people will just be like, what? You know, Um, in certain spaces. Carbon out of the sky. Yeah. Or Like, like, how does this affect drought and, you know. Right. Food security. And it is such, it is such a, um, it is such a position of privilege. Totally. In like a, a real way, not in like, oh, you're privileged. Like, truly, the fact that I'm able to sit around and do these things instead of like, worry about drought is troublesome. Totally. But I do think that, like we t- we've talked about on here before, like my end goal is to become to a positive vision of what a post-carbon future looks like and that isn't just something that happens in a moment of inspiration that happens from reading a lot and studying a lot and talking to a lot of people about what what has historically gone wrong what could go wrong 
And I think that that is a worthwhile use of my time. And unfortunately, that's what I'm good at. Like, I wish I was good at organizing people, but I'm not. I wish I was better at farming, but I kill everything I try to grow. Yeah. Like, for whatever reason, I can read and I can write decently well. So... Yeah, I the academies. For me. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, like for me, um, it's not necessarily like the reading and the thinking. I think I'm on the edge of that of that being something that I'm really like interested in. But for me, it's just talking to people and empathizing with them um, and trying to understand their experience, which is why anthropology for me um, works mm-hmm. really well. Like that's uh, mm-hmm. feels like a pursuit that works for me more so than um, the nitty gritties of policy and politics. Like um, uh, I'm just not as attuned, like able to figure those things out. They don't come as easily Mm -hmm. to me. Um, And I also think like, yeah, yeah. So it's like learning what part of the process you're in, um, Mm -hmm. I think is part of that. Absolutely. And I think that we're, like, as much as we are drawing this dichotomy, it is a very false one. Well, I mean, there's historically been a lot of academics that are also fantastic activists. Um, For example, uh, David Graeber is an anthropologist that I really, really like, and he was one of the main people involved with Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Like, um, or there's, you know... People like Henry Lefebvre is a French philosopher of urban theory who I really, really just like admire so much. And he was very active and one of the main agitators for the 1968 uprisings. And we can debate about the successes or failures of 1968 Paris and of Occupy. Mm -hmm. But you can't say that these people didn't affect the world around them. And, And there's a after Occupy, there's definitely a change in our national consciousness. We use the language of Occupy. We talk about the 99% and the 1%. And that's something that somebody theorized or somebody, like, somebody had to like think about. You totally. Know? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, I totally agree. I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts. Um, I think it is definitely a false dichotomy, and it's all enwrapped with each other. Um, like mm-hmm. someone at the, this conference that I was at, they were talking about hydropower between Pakistan and India and how it's basically, I mean, yeah, like I don't want to say too much because I'm not entirely sure, but like the ways that it's being enacted in ways that um, hurt local people um, as a means to cross-border basically warfare, not quite warfare, but you know, the skirmishes that go on there. Um, And and someone asked, like, well, how do we not just keep writing our papers but actually do something? And she was like, mm-hmm. the act of paying attention was part of doing something, you know? Because, like, after that came out and, 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 and people saw that she was working on this, they would ask her what was going on. And it was no longer these narratives of two governments hiding... Um, fighting over hydropower, but it was narratives of, like, water displacement, uh, local people um, not not getting the water they needed. And that's, like, a, it's a subversive narrative that if you don't have someone actually on the ground caring about it, you're just not going to get it, you know? Um, yeah, so I thought that was very powerful, that, like, the act of seeking out 
things that are not um, what would already be talked about um, is part of that activism, I guess. Yeah, and and you're in good company there. This is like that's Susan Sontag's sort of belief in a lot of ways that the act of witnessing, like by the very act of witnessing and reporting, you're doing something good. Yeah, yeah. This was what this this researcher said, not me. I don't want to falsely attribute uh, it to me. Um, yeah, that's what she was saying. And yeah, I completely like that that took me out of the whole questioning what was the purpose because I feel like right when you're young and with so many big things happening it's like what's the purpose of any of it <laughs> right and you yeah. want and anything short of a total and complete solution that alleviates the suffering of all people doesn't feel good enough right but that's never coming right you know? <laughs> right. But we do oh, have no. better and worse options. I feel like that's also important. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do have Especially in our options. voting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Definitely in our voting. Um, speaking of which, Kamala dropped out. Yes. And now there's all these billionaires just like yeah. who can just like be in the election. And, and I didn't like Kamala by any means, but just like. She is more qualified to be president than Mike freaking Bloomberg. I know. That's just insane. It's so insane. Yeah, it's so dumb. Yeah. Um, There's only two good candidates. Yes. And we should say it every single time. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) So. Um, So, yeah. um, Yesterday, I went to this holiday party for a group here in Tucson. And um, they're called the Watershed Management Group. And Mm -hmm. Tucson is a pretty arid place. So rainwater is extremely valuable here. So what Watershed Management Group does is they, like, collect rainwater or re-divert rainwater to make pocket parks. And it's a really, really small-scale intervention, you know? That's amazing. Um, But it's incredible. Like, okay, there's, like, now a pocket park on this street. And I went and I visited it, and it's just from rainwater. And... They let the, like, neighborhood have stake in it. And, like, we talk about our position in academia being, like, removed from actual life. But it's, like, interventions can be small, tiny, 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 community level. And they need to be because there's not going to be one global solution. I don't know why I thought this tied in. But I was, like, this is cool. We should talk about it. No, I mean, I first of all, I like the updates. And those small things, I think, give me hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, yeah, like it's just for me, the act of getting through this, of course, I just said there's better and worse mm-hmm. things, of course, that you can, um, engage with, but also it's just like, everyone just needs to care. That's like the first step. Right. Um, and then to just implement that in as many small ways as people can. Right. Um, and instead of just like only being like, uh, these large scale solutions, but also planting a tree or whatever it might be to rewild the landscape a little bit. Exactly. Um, And like, not to say that what watershed management group does isn't extremely difficult. Like planning water diversion is hard. Totally. But it's incredible because they, they're like, people just volunteer. 
to do these installs. There's like a couple people that work there full time and then everybody else is just volunteers to learn these skills. Like they volunteer to want to learn how to build a cistern or whatever. Um, Yeah. We do need to like collect and unify and know that we're not against each other. Yeah. Totally. Um, So you and I are both planning on pursuing our careers in academia. Do you want to talk about what it is you want to do in grad school or do you not want to jinx it? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what I want my career to look like. Um, Mm -hmm. it definitely, I think requires more academic work because I just want to learn more. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the underrated thing about schools. Like you just get to learn a bunch of stuff and that's so cool. (laughs) Um, and like read and talk to people about thoughts that's so fun. Um, but yeah, so since I did anthropology undergraduate, I kind of want to do a biodiversity graduate program, mm-hmm. um, which will make me, I think, stronger. Because I think where I see the gap, I that's not fair because so many people are working in this gap. So it's not really a gap. But where I see part of what I want to do um, is like between the social and natural sciences and, and trying to like rec- reconcile them, like the ecological human, mm-hmm. like how can we live with the world? Like that's the thing that just keeps like popping into my mind. Who are the um, people doing good work in that gap? Oh you gosh. Say? Put me on the spot. That's a good question. Anna Singh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'll have to get back to you on that. I, like, I'm totally blanking. <laughs> I'm, I'm but sorry to I, put oh, Well, okay, Robin, Robin Wall Kimmerer, she is right. a botanist, um, and her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, I think is a really great way to think about that. Um, and also Sharon Blackie. But basically just, like, people that are thinking about, um, yeah, thinking about how to, like, live with the earth better. Um, yeah. Where was I going with that? I, I was going somewhere. What's your career? Oh, um, yes. Yeah, so so I, I want to get more of that biodiversity stuff because I also think um, conservation really needs to be, um, it needs some changes to mm-hmm. be effective mm-hmm. um, because there's so much of that, like local communities also need to be part of the conservation of an area, um, which is often with massive NGOs kind of not thought about as much. Like they're just like, we buy land. <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, but like, what are you really doing here? We buy it's like, the no, land they're like, we no, don't but we kill the rhino. And it's like, we need to here. think about ways that, you know, um, and, and incorporating other people's voices, um, <laughs> to make stronger conservation rather than like, this is the realm of the animals and this is the realm of the humans, but only right, certain 100%. types of humans. Yes. 100%. Um, and that split is so, I think is why we're here. Like we're at this yeah. point because of this, this frankly, like, um, European notion that the human is completely separate from the landscape. Right. Right. Which there's a really, oh gosh, now I know, now I wish I had like looked at all of my readings before I did this because there's a really good one about how the Judeo-Christian kind of canon, uh, reinforced this divide in nature. Wow. Um, and like really brought about this idea of like man's domination over the earth. 
Yeah. Um, and then how that gets recapitulated through science sometimes and through conservation and all these other things. Really interesting. Because it's like, it's like passive logics. I feel like that's the thing that's yeah. Yeah. so 100%. big here is like, and, and why academia is so interesting is that like, um, it's not that a bunch of people are like, we're going to go screw things up. I mean, you know, fossil fuel people do say that, but yeah. like, <laughs> um, but like in general, it's not that people are necessarily in a space of like thinking about those things, but it's like this passive logic that comes about through right. so many different what things in our cultures and prejudices we have that like exactly. allow for these things to happen. But, um, yeah, Adorno and Horkheimer and two of my favorite you know, political thinkers in this book called Dialectic of the Enlightenment, right, that, um, that the Enlightenment can really be seen as, and I'm really reducing their argument so much, but one of their arguments about what the Enlightenment is is that it is just this scientific or technological domination of man over nature, and it's totalitarian mm-hmm. in nature, and the atomic bomb represents the end point of the rational pursuit, the pursuit of the rational, because you've gotten to the smallest, smallest, smallest building block of all the things, and you figured out how to utilize it against fellow man for violence, and that is sort of the end product of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a way more succinct way of saying that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the other thing of, like... Um, there's signs all around New York City of raccoons. Like, there's signs of raccoons that you see on the subway. And it says, this is a New Yorker, too. And that sign, yeah. like, those kinds, of, it's like we think of our built environments as so separate from nature. And that just fascinates me. And I want to undo that. Um, which is yeah, or even um, Cronin in The Trouble with Wilderness talks about how we've created the sublime nature, which is this idea of the parks and stuff in the yeah. U.S., yeah, yeah. Um, and how, like, a tree in nature, whatever we call that, is somehow more of a tree than the tree that's right outside my window right now. Oh, and, 100%. like, why do we think that way? I My theory that I can never, ever, ever prove, but my theory has to do with, like, the built environment is a space where nothing dies and mm-hmm. nature is where things die. So it's this like immortality fantasy, but that's so interesting. Okay. I'll give you my reasons of support for this. Okay. So, um, urban parks as we understand them today are really, um, originated with Frederick law Olmsted who designed central and prospect park before that you had Royal gardens and you had sort of, um, palace, esplanades for the elite but a democratic park that all the people can go to to get out of the city originated with frederick law olmstead and olmstead's main in, um in inspiration for central park was greenwood cemetery hmm. so when people wanted to get out of the filth and the mire of downtown new york and like get some fresh air they would visit the family crypt at greenwood cemetery so there was this demarcation hmm. right of like city life is where we live and then we go where when we're in nature that's where death is and it's not an unpleasant thing necessarily but you know death is there we feel connected to something but then we go back to our normal lives where everything is built nothing decays you know when the leaves fall off the trees who knows where they go there's nothing alive except for me yeah and and humans there's no yeah 
there's very few flies, there's very few, you know, just like very few animals in any kind of city. There's like dogs, flies, rats, raccoons, pretty much, that you interact with on a regular basis. We get an occasional coyote. An occasional coyote, <laughs> turtles in a park maybe, but like still in a park. A beaver came through once. <laughs> Was it domestic? Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I don't think I'll ever be able to prove that, and it's a wild hypothesis, but it is the one that uh, underpins a lot of my thinking. I mean, like, yeah, if you think about death and life and, and this, like, human nature divide, I feel like they're, that that's part of it because, like, part of our modern imaginary, I feel like, is, like, oh, well, like, a bear can't kill us or, you know, like... right you know, the, the rhizomatic and unpredictable nature of nature, uh, we get to just avoid. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like the, like, if you think about our domination over nature started with farming. Okay. We extended our lives. We stayed rooted in one place. We stopped falling victim to chance, you know, the chance of, like, not finding berries when we go hunting and just, like, reducing chance over and over again with all our technological innovations. Like, okay, I'm reducing the chance that I can be cold every time I turn on the heat. Like, with the invention of heat, I reduce the chance that I'm cold. You know what I mean? All these things. Yeah. I reduce the chance that I'm going to hear some shit song on the radio by inventing Apple Music where I only hear what I want to hear. Right. And, like, the ultimate... Um, sort of trump card chance has over us is death. So this project yeah. of like dominating nature or dominating chance, its logical conclusion would be the escape of death. And we're not quite there yet. But the yeah. city represents that fantasy to me in all its like unchangingness. Like steel and glass, they're these unchanging building materials. They don't change at all as much as the city itself changes. But like you look at these buildings and you're like, these could have been here forever. Mhm. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about that. I I don't like this word and I'm I I feel like there's a better way to say this, but I'm I've been thinking about like the commodification of certainty. Ooh, and like You don't like the word commodification? How, huh? No, I I I'm not sure if it applies completely if it, of what I'm thinking about, but it might. Like I was thinking in tourism it's like you expect to see a tiger if you go out 100%, on a tiger safari 100%. or even with like tinder it's like you expect to find a date you know it's like we're making all these things so you can absolutely for sure expect that the thing that you want is the thing that you're gonna get right and um, and, and the thing that you don't want will not happen more importantly yeah well this is one and, of the things of like space and place theory as well uh-huh um david harvey who teaches at cooney um talks about gated communities and he's like you're trying to you're when you make a place you are cutting off the flow of time basically from the uncertainties of the outside world so like a gated community represents like all the change of the city it is out there but like the gated community represents certainty and more importantly keeps he argues um like racialized in in the case of baltimore where he's talking about it keeps the the black uh, members of Baltimore out and the white members in so that the white members of the gated community feel certain that they don't have to, you know, heaven forbid, see a black person. Totally. I don't know. And I feel like I my question, 
with all this is like, what do you lose in the process of gaining certainty? Some excitement. (laughs) A lot of excitement. And excitement is what I feel like the human brain is supposed to be running off of to some extent. Like, you know, like if you live a completely monotonous life. Right. Full of complete certainty. What is that life really? Well, we, we have everything that we want and we're so profoundly unhappy. Totally. Because nothing seems like fate. Nothing seems like a twist of events for us anymore. Like, we go to our job. All right, everything happens as it's supposed to. We go home. We watch Netflix. We see what we want. We're not surprised by anything. Nothing is, the algorithm plays music that we know that we're going to like. Like, nothing is shocking anymore. So we just, like, complacent. We have this ennui. Or, like, I don't say we because I don't feel this way because I'm not living a pretty conventional life right now. Mm-hmm. But we as like an American the dominant populace. yeah the dominant narrative yeah yeah the dominant culture yeah like comfortable people's most powerful emotion is like complacency totally you know? just like can't feel true sadness or can't feel true happiness like it's kind of sad <laughs> yeah I agree <laughs> and that is sort of what people imagine to go back to like the sublime nature people expect like when you go out into nature like i don't know what's gonna happen yeah 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 it's like but they also kind of do expect to be awed by it right like yes um and i feel like the more that i have gone to places and been like expecting to be odd the less i feel odd um because it's like you're almost just arguing with your own like is this, is this what feeling odd feels like? You know, like you're, you're like thinking about it too much. Whereas like sometimes when I just see like a tiny caterpillar, I'm just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. How could it possibly be like this? You know? And then you're just like totally overwhelmed with how beautiful the world is. Um, And when you're like, I want to let this feeling in, sometimes it's just not there. Yeah. And that would that would still exist in these, quote unquote, sublime places if we just didn't already commodify them to be sublime, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, But yeah, we're running pretty long. We are kind of running long. We have a lot to say about this, I guess. Well, I mean, (laughs) this is what I'm saying. This is like the field where we're both qualified. Yeah. 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 I did, on a completely unrelated note that I was supposed to bring up at the start of the um, episode, the current event of yesterday was that the world's lowest temperature was recorded in a typhoon that hit the Philippines um, the other day. Wow. It was like negative 160 degrees. Wow. And, I mean, the Philippines, all those island nations in the Pacific... Philippines, Indonesia, um, parts of Japan are just going to get absolutely destroyed by this. Uh, by this monster specific created. event? Do you want to like elaborate? Or, or no, no, no. Just like by climate change, mm, mm, by mm-hmm. by sea level rises, by hurricanes, by typhoons, and they just will never recover, and will never like <laughs> be terrible. Yeah, that's really scary. Um, and no amount of theorizing in the world can like take that away totally no and like that's the horrifying thing always to me is like 
Even if we do everything perfectly starting now, we've already entered the Anthropocene. Like, it's here. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, again, I guess I'll just say the same thing I said before. There's better and worse things that we could do from here on out. Always. Um, As Deleuze and Guattari would say. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, History is the product of active and temporary selections. There's always choices. One choice is always made over another, and that choice was actively made, but it's only temporary. They're talking about it in response, like the development of capitalism, like where somebody like Marx sees it as inevitable. They're like, well, only if you see the end product, you can see it as inevitable. But at every point, there were actions. There were so many actions that created that system, totally. Exactly. The Gilded Age. Fossil fuels are an active and temporary selection that we're making right yes. now, every single second. Yes. We are reifying our commitment to it. Yeah. So, so with that, should we talk about a pretty thing? Yeah, let's talk about a pretty thing. Um, um, I can go. Um, yeah, go when ahead. I was in Vancouver, um, I went to Stanley Park and... I was just trying to actively engage in the world because I felt like I'd been in my head so much. And so I was just, um, like, looking at small things. And I saw this mushroom that kind of looked like a stingray and, like, had, like, a grumpy nice. face. Um, I posted on my Wait, Instagram. I saw this on your Instagram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I checked it for once, actually, <laughs> the other day. And I think I was showing um, my roommate a picture of you. Oh, really? Because she was like... Yeah, she was like, is Michelle cute? Michelle sounds cute. I was like, yeah, she's pretty cute. I'll show you. (laughs) And then I saw a picture of a mushroom. Wow. Well, thank you. (laughs) I was um, like, she has great eyebrows. Yeah. Listeners, if you've never looked at Michelle before, she has great eyebrows. (laughs) Yes, I suppose so. I hear that often. That's the only thing I have going for me. (laughs) Put it on my resume. Um, Big brain, great brows. (laughs) Oh, God. That could be my Insta bio. (laughs) No, it couldn't. Um, Anyway, yeah, so I saw that mushroom, and I was just like, this is so amazing. Like, good job, mushroom, for growing like that. Or fungi. I don't know if it's a mushroom, technically. But um, There's a movie about fungi coming out, and I'm seeing it on Saturday. I'm so excited. That sounds great. We we should do a special episode where we just talk about this fungus movie. Yeah, we should. (laughs) Uh, but that, Paul that'll Stanitz, be for the my Patreon. Favorite, my I'll be for the Patreon. Patreon exclusive. <laughs> Venmo us. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Yours. Your turn. Okay. Um, I'm trying to decide. Um, well, I went to Mexico for Thanksgiving. Ooh. Drove there using fossil fuels. Cancel me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I bike everywhere most days, just to be clear. Um, but drove to Mexico. And on the way back, we were passing through these mountains at sunset. And, you know, just, um, I think we've talked about this before, but geologic time, like the time scale of rocks and mountains and tectonic plates, these things are just eons and eons old. Um, And you just feel tiny in their face and like, they make you feel like everything's gonna be okay because they'll still be there. Yeah. And you know, they'll still keep moving. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, you know, thank God for geologic time much larger than us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yes. 
that's a great way to end it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah, we appreciate all of you that are listening. Yeah, it does mean something. It means a lot to me, personally. I don't know about Michelle. <laughs> I'm, co- I'm totally heartless. I don't mind at all. <laughs> no, she's got other things going on No, no, no. it does mean it means something to me. Um, this is the kind um, of conversations that sustain me. So, yeah. yeah. And it means a lot to me that I get to talk to you um, twice a month, Michelle, yeah. about these things. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Uh, this is Michelle. This is Ish signing off. House of Nostalgia. In the Anthropocene, what does your free?